The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Welcome to this episode of Setting the Record Straight, part of the Reconstructionist Radio Network. This is not the Worldview Media Podcast. <laughs> uh, my name is Gordon Runyon, and I am here with my wife, Joyce. Hello. I'm the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tucumcari, New Mexico, and it's my week on Setting the Record Straight. <laughs> your week to do the job. Yeah. I do want to get into some eschatology issues in just a little bit, but before we do that, I want to just mention briefly the current controversy in our circles over kinism mm. and just to set all the cards on the table. Okay. So for me, <laughs> kinism is... Oh, you want a definition? Yes. Well, generally, kinism is the belief that genetics determines things like race and, or not just race, but culture and even religion. And so, uh, generally, even if kinists don't talk like this, the idea is that your the, the culture of a nation or of an ethnicity is going to be determined by the genetics and, your genes will find their way out into into the culture. So black culture will always look different than Asian culture or whatever. And generally also, it goes also with this idea that white culture is more easily Christian than black culture is. And not all kinists would go that far, but mm-hmm. generally this idea... See, we believe that culture is religion externalized, which means that whatever your faith is, that's going to find its way into your art and your storytelling and your songwriting and your traditions and stuff like that. So culture is religion externalized. Kinism is basically founded on the idea that culture is genetics, like I say, DNA externalized. So it's inescapable. Yeah, yeah, very much. And even once you get saved, that's still true. So your genetics wind up being more of an influence than even your, you Thank know, God. being regenerated. Or, yeah. yeah. Uh, the way this works out also is in Kinism's general dislike for the idea of interracial marriage. Maybe I'm crazy, but I thought there was one race, and it was called human. Uh, uh, I guess I'm wrong, so thanks for letting me know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, see, I would say you're right about that. There's one race. Now, all our cards on the table here, I'm a pasty-skinned white guy, and in my my (laughs) heritage... All there is is like Northern European. Yeah. And my wife, (laughs) 
the lovely and talented Joyce. Right. On your mom's side, you have like European, Spanish. Mm-hmm. Yes, French. French and mm-hmm. Spanish. On your dad's side, it's all Mexican. Well, yeah, and Indian. Indian, you yeah. Know. Your dad was kind of a dark-skinned dude. But those of you who don't know Joyce and haven't seen her, uh, she is rarely recognized as being Hispanic right off the bat. Yeah. And people are sometimes surprised to hear that she is. So to a chemist, you and I are in an interracial marriage. And the two, the two reconstructionists. Well, I'm about to tell you. The two reconstructionist preachers who are at the center of the controversy have used the word adultery to describe what you what your marriage is you you because you mine (laughs) don't you mean ours (laughs) (laughs) or suddenly it's my marriage (laughs) (laughs) and they're your kids too (laughs) well i'll take them (laughs) (laughs) well the idea is that since god designed the races and designed them to be kept separately. If we marry across those racial boundaries, then we're disobeying the design of God. And it's, it would, it's the same sort of sin as if a Christian were to marry a non-Christian. It's that same kind of being unequally yoked and, mm-hmm. and marrying across boundaries. Very similar to how Jewish men were not supposed to marry pagan women and yeah. stuff like that. And so, like I say, these two Reconstructionist teachers, Weaver and Hammond, both use this uh, idea of adultery. And so that would mean that the children in such a marriage are illegitimate. Mm-hmm. So we had talked about this just a little bit before, and I think when you told me that, I was like, uh, so how do you resolve this situation if it is indeed <laughs> sin and adultery, and, you know, what What are you supposed to do to correct that? Uh, right. And how useful is it for you to go to your brother and say, hey, brother, you're in sin, and then, and then not have a way out mm-hmm. of that, to not say to them, here's what you need to do in order to bear the fruits of repentance. Mm-hmm. This is what repentance would look like. So it doesn't make much much sense, I think, to say... Y'all stop this. It's adultery. Okay. We'll, we'll stop. What do we need to do? How do, mm. what would repentance look like? And there's no answer. It, it boils down to, yeah, you were committing adultery when you got married, but now that you're married, just kind of do the best you can and <laughs> muddle through. You know, and God is often like that <laughs> with all sin, not just. Not just this. Right, it's too late to do anything about it. You know, you tried. <laughs> that money you stole, it's already been spent. Don't worry about restitution yeah. anymore. Just maybe, yeah, I, and I think that was, that was something that I thought was a little ridiculous to say, well, this is sin, but uh, eh, what can you do, <laughs> right, you know? Right. And it's of note that as we discuss this, uh, two of our adult daughters were around to hear the discussion, mm-hmm. and uh, they were able immediately to spot the implication. You know, if, mm-hmm. if our marriage is adulterous, then that makes them products of adultery and illegitimate. Yeah. And but that's half of our society, at least. <laughs> <laughs> so come on in. <laughs> right. 
Right. Well, and I think the other thing that kind of bothered me about this is that because I don't look Hispanic and I don't say my CH like SH and I don't, you know, <laughs> right. there's, I don't do a lot of the things that are traditionally uh, culture. Right. You know, I yeah. make some pretty decent food, but uh, we wouldn't be included in that because I don't obviously look like I'm Hispanic. So well, I think it depends on which chemist you talk to, because a lot of them really are into just what it looks like, which seems kind of melanin shallow. Oh, sure. You know, because if I was dark skinned, well, then obviously that would be like now we're in trouble. You know, there's a red flag, but uh, because I'm not, then oh yeah, you guys are cool. But you know, and that's really very um, lame. (laughs) (laughs) Really, very lame. Right. Right. Now, so the controversy continued. It wasn't just the fact that these two men have, have preached these things and and their teachings are public. Mm-hmm. But then uh, Joel McDermott from American Vision, along with Bojadar and Jason Sanchez and mm-hmm. uh, other Reconstructionist radio men, took a pretty strong stand on Facebook and said, no, you can't, can't do this. And, mm-hmm. and one of the big issues is that, uh, at least one of the men has been invited to speak at a reconstructionist conference. Yeah. And, uh, so the issue is, is this even appropriate? Even if he's not going to speak on these things, mm-hmm. should we have, should we? But he has, us? and he believes these things. Well, he has said those things and he has not disavowed those beliefs. Mm-hmm. Some of the people trying to defend these two have suggested they don't really believe these things, or they believe something more mild than this. Mm-hmm. But they themselves—what is more mild than that? I mean, well, that maybe they're just talking about, you know, if you if you if two people from vastly different cultures get married, that's going to put a added strain on the marriage and stuff. Which you know, there's nothing racist about that. That's just recognizing the way the world works. But what, getting married to anybody is going to yeah. Like that. If you're looking to avoid stress, <laughs> remain single. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's not just your spouse you're having to deal with. You got the family yeah, and exactly. all these crazy people. <laughs> exactly. But well, you know, as we were sitting here talking about it, into my head pops Ruth and Boaz. Sure. You know, in the genealogy of Christ, definitely not a Jewish girl coming in, being taken in, an interracial marriage for sure, and yet uh, was the plan of God. Yeah, well, and it was completely lawful at that time, even though the law said don't marry these pagan girls. She wasn't a pagan girl when he married her. She was a convert to the true God, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that trumped everything, and... The same with Moses marrying the dark-skinned woman. And, yeah. And uh, you just find that throughout the Bible, this whole idea that in Christ, these superficial things become... Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't go away. You know, black people are always going to look different than white people, and Asians are going to look different mm-hmm. than Hispanics and all that. And that's always going to be true. But in terms of of value and, and kingdom standing mm-hmm. and, and well, there's and no more important. Jew or exactly. Gentile. Exactly. Know, I don't think any of us here are Jews. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but yet we're all, we've all been grafted in. And so if God is going to look past those things, are right. we really so much higher than he yeah, is right. to say, Oh no, these things matter. And, uh, 
Right. I don't think that's our business. Well, I saw one guy trying to say, you know, at the Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. God split everybody into different groups based on their languages. And, mm-hmm. and so was that an evil thing that they had to be split like that? Yeah, that's a that's an outgrowth of the curse on sin and all that, mm-hmm. that division. But but then at Pentecost the exact opposite yeah. thing happened that men of Everybody different understood. languages were all coming in and yeah. being united in Christ. And so some of the Kenneths will act like what happened at Babel is supposed to be normative, that this is the way the world is supposed to be now, this split and the separation. And I'm saying, no, Pentecost is the normative story, not Babel. Pentecost is the redemptive coming back. So in the timeline of Babel and flood... Babel's after the flood. So you've got... The, the flood. three sons of Noah and their daughter or their wives, wives. Yeah, and yeah. so we're we're all coming from one yeah, family right, because right. all the world was flooded. Sure, but uh, you know, men are bad, and sin is in our hearts, yeah. and you know, it's if yeah. unchecked, we do terrible things. For sure. Now the issue is. I think uh, I think even the folks that are trying to defend these guys, they're not necessarily defending kinism. They're not defending the idea. In fact, the main one in defense has disavowed the idea many times. Mm-hmm. But the issue is defending these guys and saying, even though they do believe these things, then we can welcome them inside the camp and let them be our teachers and... Uh, that's where the, where the real rub is. And when Joel McDermott posted a post on Facebook about drawing a line in the sand and you need to decide what side you're on and, and all that, and, mm-hmm. and it was about, if you're standing on this one side, what you're saying is, I believe this kinism thing is a large enough error mm-hmm. that I'm not going to trust or deal with the guy who's teaching it. That doesn't mean that I can't be friends with somebody who holds to some of these beliefs, but it would kind of obligate me in my friendship to try to correct them. You know? Yeah. And so that line in the sand is really about saying, uh, I'm not going to, as far as my own right and duty of private judgment is concerned, I'm not going to accept a guy who teaches that as yeah. a faithful teacher of the, of the scripture. And, well, and and so the kick, the pushback has been, oh well, you guys are just being heavy-handed. You're mm-hmm. you're acting like this whole thing is your club, and and you get to just by fiat declare who belongs and who doesn't, and yeah, and stuff like that. And you know what? That's okay. That's fine. Mm-hmm. If everybody at Reconstructionist Radio says no, we won't have Kenneth and we're not going to put up with kinism, then if you hate that, and you think that means that we're all being a bunch of bullies and bad guys, then go somewhere else. Yeah, that makes sense. Use your own right and duty of private judgment and go somewhere else. Yeah, you're not going to sway. (laughs) Well, and to me, it winds up being that there are, there's levels of citizenship in Christ. Yeah, that's the implication for sure. And, uh, where is that scripturally? <laughs> right. And the people that are upset about 
that line in the sand, you know, they wouldn't, if you met a guy that was solid, rock solid on 90% of what he said, but he was pro-abortion for some reason Mm -hmm. and believed he had scripture to Mm -hmm. show that you could hold a pro-abortion position, or even if he was just neutral about it and said things like, well, abortion should be abolished within the church, but hey, if the pagans want to cut off their next generation, I'm not going to stop them or say anything about it. And so I think even if you had a solid Reconstructionist who believed that, none of these people that are complaining would accept that guy. Yeah, but that's really the problem with our with the church in our society is that we say nothing. <laughs> right. And so it doesn't matter. And we have no influence. We have no, we have nothing right. because we say, well, that's outside the church. And you know, we're supposed to be taking dominion and taking over and having Christ's kingdom spread. Yeah. Not in the four walls of the church. Right. But beyond those walls and making a difference in what's in society and in culture, whatever that culture is, if it's black, if it's Asian, if it's Portuguese, if it's whatever it is, we are the ones that are supposed to be going out and making that change in the culture because God's word is true and he tells you what sin is and you have, you have the obligation to stand before him one day. Yeah. And say, well, uh, I just didn't think so. <laughs> right. Yeah. And like the like the trouble with modern Christianity is that we're too exclusive. You know, we've just... Uh, like that's the issue with the modern church. No. <laughs> the issue is that we, we say nothing. We allow anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's all good. You can have any type of spouse you want and walk through the door and we'll accept <laughs> right. you. And, right. And there's no... There's no power in anything. And so we just wanted to take this first half of the program to just, in a very straightforward way, say that we're absolutely coming down on the same side of the line in the sand as Joel McDermott is on and and, uh, happy to stand there. And uh, that's me and my entire interracial family. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, and it is... Uh, for people to to make a judgment on me because of my genetics, right, or because my dad had darker skin, or because of whatever, yeah, it's just not right. No, it isn't. And there are people who are more worried about these two men saying that they are being slandered, and they're not worried about all these couples that have been, yeah, similarly I mean, slandered. Over 30 years, we've been living in adultery. <laughs> right. Well, that explains a lot. <laughs> but now crazy. we've <laughs> repented and we're just going to do the best we can. <laughs> That's crazy. Right. That's just crazy. I mean, if it really is sin, then you have to say to these couples, I'm sorry, you have to divorce, you have to, you you have to so. stop doing this because so. that's yeah. what you do with sin. You stop doing it. You don't just yeah. say, well, you know. I tried. It's in my jeans. (laughs) Craziness. All right. We'll be right back after a little break here. Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. 
Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. And we're back for the second half, or the second portion anyway, of (laughs) setting the record straight here on Reconstructionist Radio. Pastor Gordon Runyon here with my wife Joyce. And I want to talk for a little bit about eschatology, shifting gears pretty greatly here. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that you'll hear a lot within Christianity is this idea that doesn't really matter what you believe in terms of eschatology, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter. And I'd agree it's not the sort of issue where if you disagree with me, then we have to separate or anything like that. And uh, I'll listen to a teacher who's not a post-millennialist. Mm-hmm. I'll think he's wrong the entire time, but I'll listen to him. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it's not... It's not one of these first tier issues, mm-hmm. but what I've noticed, and and it's here, I'm going to show you in the scripture, it's here in three parables in a row. And I think what Jesus does in these parables is he points out that uh, whatever your view of eschatology is, whether it's post-millennial or pre-millennial, amillennial, mm-hmm. you think Jesus is coming back tomorrow, or you think he'll probably take a long time to return. Mm-hmm. Regardless, there are some implications. Uh, well, there are implications and there are special temptations that go with each mm-hmm. one of those. Mm-hmm. And so I believe he told these parables to kind of make us aware of that. And there's three of them. And I don't know if I'll read them all just for the sake of time, but we'll go through them real fast. In Matthew chapter 24, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 45, Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there, and the gnashing of teeth. So that's the first of three parables in a row that have to do with eschatology here. Mm -hmm. And you notice 
that when the master puts the kind of the head slave in charge managing the household, that there comes a point where the slave says to himself, uh, my master is delayed. He's not coming for yeah. a long time. No one's coming. I can do what I want. <laughs> right. And that he's not saying that the master isn't coming back. He just, he's convinced in his own mind it won't be anytime soon. Yeah. And so in that space of time, that gives him the opportunity to really, uh, what it boils down to, to, he really begins to act like he's the master, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Now he's bossing around the slaves. He was made the manager, but now he's acting like the master and he's the one enjoying all the goods of the household and, mm-hmm. and bossing these folks around. And I want to say that I think that is a temptation that is a live and present option for people like me who do not believe that Jesus is returning anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I think we may be in early church history right now. Uh, You know, when Jesus is about to return, I think church historians may look back on 2018 and say, you know, this is an ancient church history, but we can still learn from you know, they had this thing called kinism going on. And <laughs> there were, believe this, there were some who were actually okay with that. And, yeah. and they'll act like we were crazy people. Yeah, I know some of those. <laughs> right. And so that's a temptation. If you believe that Jesus really isn't on the verge of returning, the temptation is to then kind of go hog wild and do what you think you want to do. And we find this outside the church, too, with kind of halfway believers they know a little bit about Christianity, but they're not saved. Mm-hmm. And they'll say things like, well, I plan on repenting and asking for forgiveness on my deathbed. Yeah. And I've got a long time till then. I don't yeah. need to do it now. And so there's a temptation for those of us who think that history may have a long time yet to go. We need to make sure that we are really... Uh, doing the things that we've really been left to do, our duty. Mm-hmm. Now, the special thing there, and why it's specially applicable, I think, is that the bad guy in the parable is the one who is left in charge of the house. Yeah. And if I could relate this to church stuff, I think this means it's a special temptation for pastors and elders and teachers, this idea that, in the absence of the physical presence of Jesus Christ, yeah, that I'm the guy. You know, I'm the one that stands up in front of the congregation and yeah. preaches. And, and so there's a special temptation to begin to aggrandize all these things to myself and, mm-hmm. and make sure that I am, hey, it's Jesus' house. He put me in charge. Yeah. I should be able to drink as much of the wine as I want. And, and so there's a special temptation there that I don't think affects people as much who believe that Jesus really is coming soon. Now, they've got their own temptations to deal with. I think I've known some people like that. (laughs) I don't know if it had anything to do with when they thought Jesus was coming back, but... uh... (laughs) We have experienced abusive pastoral types. All right, well, then I'll move on. The next parable begins in chapter 25, verse 1. It's the one about the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. 
For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now, whether or not this parable is talking about the second coming of Christ is really not uh, terribly germane. I think it is talking about that. But the germane issue is the fact that the five foolish virgins were those who had convinced themselves for one reason or another that their wait on the bridegroom was going to be relatively short. Mm -hmm. The five wise virgins prepared for a longer wait than the five foolish ones did. And I think that's an issue eschatologically. If you are a premillennialist and you really believe that Jesus is right around the corner... You're gonna. You're about to get raptured out of here. That's going to have to affect the way you plan mm-hmm. and and the sort of investments that you make. For sure, we've had these like rapture cults and stuff. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses started as this sort of thing, and where they believe they knew the day and the hour, and yeah, and they didn't go about doing business as normal when they thought they knew the day and the hour. (laughs) They sold everything and, and they abandoned as much as they could the entanglements of the world, so to speak. And then the next day after that day, they were in a hard place. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, And, uh, so if you have this idea that Jesus is right around the corner, I, I don't see how you can't be affected by that such that it begins to change what you plan for and what you see ahead mm-hmm. and choices that you make. Uh, Jay Vernon McGee famously said on his radio show that you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. And so yeah. if the world is that sinking ship, then all the cultural things you're trying to do and pursuing justice in the social arenas mm-hmm. or like you said, outside the doors of the, outside the four walls of the church, you're actually pursuing the kingdom out there. Mm-hmm. Well, why would you do that? Jesus is coming. Yeah. And naturally I think that's going to affect you. And I have dispensationalist friends who still really buy into that system. Mm-hmm. And to their credit, they haven't quite gone whole hog in terms of developing this very short-sighted attitude. I think they they all have retirement funds and stuff. they're all saving for college. And, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's just, I think when it comes to serving, uh, quote-unquote, serving Christ, then their vision is very short-sighted, mm-hmm. the bar is set very low. That time is so short, all we can do is maybe snatch a few out of the yeah. flames. And and even that's just talking about getting them to make a decision and stuff like that. Uh, so there are, there are dispensationalists who act contrary. You know, they don't take their view to its logical conclusion. Yeah. But 
here are these foolish virgins and their foolishness, the oil in there is not the Holy Spirit or anything. It's the provision that they were responsible to make. And they refuse to make the sort of provision that you would make if you thought, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he won't come until sometime later. Yeah. And so I think that's had huge ramifications for the church. The last of the parables starts in Matthew twenty five fourteen. It says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, called his own slaves, and entrusted his possessions to them. Now, this is the parable of the talents. I won't read all the way through it, but you know what happens. The master goes on a journey, and he leaves talents with his Different. servants, mm-hmm. according to what he knew of their abilities. Mm-hmm. One got five, and one got, what, two, and the other got one. Important to note. He wasn't being stingy when he gave the one a talent. Mm -hmm. That's 75 pounds of gold, you know. Mm. So he wasn't... Wasn't like, here's a penny for you. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, here people talk some way. Well, you know, the Lord only gave me my one little meager talent. (laughs) Yeah, not so meager, huh? Well, no. No, not in the parable anyway. Some people are meagerly gifted. That's probably true. (laughs) Well, I'm talking about myself when I say that. You never heard a preacher with a worse preacher voice than I have. You gotta let it go, man. Anyway, the issue is that the guy with the one talent buried it in the ground. Yeah. He. On Oak Island. (laughs) <laughs> it's somewhere on Oak Island. <laughs> he oh, buried it. That's another thing. <laughs> <laughs> You're mixing up our podcast. Uh, he buried it when the master comes back and asks. So he gives it back to the master mm-hmm. when the master Intact, asks him. Just whatever it was. Yeah, so it can't really be on Oak Island. Yeah, dug it up. That's a problem. <laughs> he gives it back to the master. And master asked him why he did that. And the excuse that he gave was that he was fearful. Mm-hmm. Thought that the master's a hard man and he reaps where he hasn't sown and he yeah. demands profit where he hasn't properly invested and worked and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's the Reasoning. view that yeah. he has. But then Jesus has the master say back to him, no, you're wicked and lazy is what the issue is. Yeah. Okay. He's using... He's using fear as an excuse for his slothfulness. Mm-hmm. And in the book of Proverbs, uh, fear and slothfulness are very intimately connected. They're pretty good friends. They're right. They go together. Mm-hmm. And one of the places where I see this, I, I don't have the address with me, but there's a proverb that says that the slothful man says, Oh, there's a lion in the streets. <laughs> He read that one. The slothful man, not the coward. The slothful man says, there's a lion in the streets. I can't go out there and get anything done. I have to stay in here behind my closed door. Yeah. Now, if you ask him, why are you in? Hey, I'm fearful of the lion. I I heard there was a lion. Mm. But what's the issue? He's just lazy and he doesn't want to go work. And so this servant is using fear as a as an excuse for not actually uh, investing, not actually putting the talents to work, not doing the work necessary in order to turn a profit. Mm-hmm. He, if he claims he knows his master, he should know 
that his master didn't leave him with the talents just to fund his laziness for a period of time. Yeah. The master left him with the talent expecting a return on his investment. And that means that you and I, however we've been gifted and whatever God has given us, he expects us to turn a profit on that. And what's the reason most people don't turn a profit on things? Well, sometimes they make stupid investments. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the time it's that they're scared. And the reason so many people have this pet business idea in their mind and they've never started that business, what is that? Well, they're fearful. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to go to work for somebody that's going to pay you a regular paycheck than it is to put it all on the line yeah. and go start that business or, or whatever. Be entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurial people are generally not lazy people, and they're courageous people. Yeah. Try to bring some cowardliness into an entrepreneurial venture. That's probably not going to work very well. <laughs> Yeah. And I see the same sort of eschatological issue here. The one with the one talent knew that his master was coming back. Mm-hmm. But there was something about it, something about the delay and the time that he was gone that made him made him suppose, you know, I've just got the one, this other guy's got five. Mm-hmm. Even if I do make a small progress and profit here that's not going to be enough really compared to what this other guy's doing with five and this one with twice as much as me and i think this affects post-millennialists i think it affects christian reconstructionists because we understand that god does demand that we turn a profit on what we've been given and we'll give an account for what we've been given Mm -hmm. but it's easy for a guy like me, for instance, mm-hmm. who finds himself planted in the armpit of the Southwest <laughs> in a tiny little town where there's nothing going on. Yeah. It's easy for me to believe that. And, and you couple that with the realization that most kingdom progress happens very slowly. Yeah. So that you really, it's hard to even see it sometimes. And so put those things together And the temptation then is for somebody in my kind of situation to look and say, you know what, even if I'm faithful, even if I'm daring and bold, Mm -hmm. the chances of me really doing something significant in the armpit of the Southwest, in terms of the overall kingdom, those chances are very, very slight. And I know for a fact I've got Facebook friends that are out there on the front lines and the, the tip of the spear and they're, and they're getting heroic things done, you know, yeah. and the opportunity for that kind of heroism just isn't here. You know, I'm doing mundane things like trying to find people shelter for the night when they're transients or something like mm-hmm. that. And so the temptation is to think, maybe I just shouldn't try that hard <laughs> because even if I do plow everything into it, what are the chances that it's really going to make a difference? Yeah. And so I know that there are reconstructionists out there who see the same heroic people on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And instead of inspiring them, it winds up discouraging them because they know they're probably not going to be able to do those things or they won't be like them or, or they look at their own uh, list of resources and it seems very small 
to them. Mm-hmm. Or it's a homeschooling mom who's stuck at home with five kids or something like that. She would like to, she's got a lion's heart and she would like to be out on the front lines, but she's got to teach two plus two and, and ABCs to this tiny little baby. And, and I think that it's then very easy for us to get discouraged when we don't see fantastic fruit in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And we excuse it by saying, well, when Jesus does return, you know, other people are doing the heroic things and the kingdom is growing at their hands. And, yeah. And I just think that that kind of thing, the, the fear, the slothfulness, the discouragement, I think all those things are generally uh, more real temptations for those of us who see Christ coming a long way down in the down the halls of the future. You know? Yeah, uh, it's very easy to be emotionally jazzed if you really believe the rapture is probably going to be tomorrow or something like that. You know, Trump's about to push that nuclear button and start war. <laughs> So that means we're probably out of here. And so it's very easy to be excited about that kind of thing. Hard to maintain. Well, until he pushes it and then you're still here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm still here. (laughs) What happened? (laughs) I'm not supposed to have any hard times. Right. God didn't rescue me out of my tribulations. And so I do think that those are three. uh, They don't. Those are three temptations. They don't condemn any particular eschatological view, mm-hmm. but they do stand as warnings for us. Yeah. And two of them, at least, are warnings for us who see Christ coming sometime a long way off. And so let's pay attention to those. We need to make sure that we are doing the ethical, judicial things that we've been left here to do. And we need to make sure we're, uh, we're doing the right things with what we've been left. We're investing for the future. We're we're planning. We're yeah. moving with a long-range vision in mind. So for those people who might be feeling discouraged after your, right. your long spiel on discouragement. And <laughs> right, right. Feeling unworthy and left out. And what would your word of encouragement be? Just do the right things? <laughs> no, my word of encouragement would be that I think sometimes we have to resist the temptation to narrowly define kingdom building as that frontline stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, we need those guys, and I genuinely believe all those guys are heroes. And I love them, and I respect them, and mm-hmm. hold them on a pedestal. And wow, those are great guys. Amazing. Yeah. Guys and gals. Uh, Amazing warriors. But for the guy who's stuck in a nine-to-five job, and it seems like all he's getting done is he's providing for his family. And when he's home with his kids, he's able to train them up and teach them to think biblically about Mm. everything they see. That's kingdom building. You know, all of that stuff, all that mundane stuff, if we're doing all things as unto the Lord, that's kingdom building. Yeah. And there's no reason to be, there's no reason to look down our noses at it. That's all good stuff. Well, it's necessary. And it, uh, it's the next generation. You want to sure. train them up in the way that they need to be going. Absolutely. Because nobody else is going to do it. Right. And the truth of it is, 
that that's really a small span of time. Yeah. Once you... Yeah, ours are gone. Once you get through that. I mean, some days it feels like forever, but it really is just a small span of time. Yeah, and I want to also say, just because you are in that mundane place, I think that we we do need to train ourselves to think strategically. Uh, There's always more that we can be doing. Uh, It doesn't mean that we do more for the sake of doing more. Mm -hmm. But I do think that we need to be prayerfully pursuing God with, is this the best tactically, uh, best tactical thing that I can use my time on and stuff Mm -hmm. like that? Is there a strategically better way for me to accomplish these things? And just because the kingdom does grow gradually, it doesn't mean that the results are not very powerful when they happen. You know, those gradual things can be gigantic in terms of we need to reorient kind of the way we think about things. God's economy tends to invert a lot of the way the world thinks. Yeah. And so it's easy for us to get excited about the really flashy, the the warriors and and, and God bless them. We need yeah. a generation just like that. But that doesn't mean that what God's called me to do in a quiet place where not much is going on, that doesn't mean that, that I'm not obeying God by actually doing those things. Yeah. I am. And so uh, that's a big deal. Well, and to me, it sounds a little like you might be referring to a body that has lots of different parts. Oh, you think so? Different gifts? And different, different things they're supposed <laughs> to be doing, and some may not be quite as showy, but right. they're all necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And when we're all doing the things right, then we're all facing the same way in the battle. We're all facing down the same enemies. And mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the way that works. All right, y'all, we're going to sign off. Thanks for listening to this episode of Setting the Record Straight. Exciting times at Setting the Record Straight. We've got two new contributors who will be... Nice. (laughs) (laughs) What? What? Yay! (laughs) Joyce is choked with excitement. uh, Welcome aboard! (laughs) And they will be making appearances shortly, so we're excited for that. Well, that is exciting news. Yeah, good stuff. God is on the move. Until next time, y'all, put on the full armor of God and take that stand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.